0: From WFIU
1: in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. I didn't have an investigative team, I didn't have a data team, or all the things that, that people now have at newspapers, and, and I mostly bumbled my way through dumpster diving and getting moles in kitchens to, to feed me invoices and that kind of thing. This week on the show, a conversation with
0: Tampa Bay Times food critic Laura Riley about her groundbreaking work exposing fraudulent claims in the world of farm-to-table dining. We give that 2019 interview a second listen, Harvest Public Media has a story about lavender farmers in the Midwest, and I share a simple apricot fennel salad recipe. All that and so much more just ahead here on Earth Eats. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Renee Reed is here with food and farming updates. Hello, Renee.
2: Hi, Kate. Only one out of every 20 farmland acres in the Corn Belt has cover crops planted. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin explains what this means for the environment.
3: A mountain of research shows the benefits of planting cover crops, from sequestering carbon from the environment to keeping waterways cleaner. And yet, according to a new study from the Environmental Working Group, only 4.8% of corn and soybean acres have them. Soren Rundquist is the director of spatial analysis for the EWG and a lead researcher.
4: This should be alarming to anyone who uh, cares about clean water. which should be every human because we rely on it for survival.
3: Rundquist says the low adoption rate falls in line with federal investment in cover crops, which has gone down over the past few years in the surveyed states of Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, and Minnesota. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media.
2: Our global food supply is at risk due to the rise in infectious diseases. That's according to a new study from the University of Illinois, which focused on diseases affecting plants and animals. Those diseases are on the rise due to climate change and globalization, according to the study. Valeria Treveloni is one of the researchers.
0: The bad news here is that this is going to become more and more common as we go along. But the good news is that we have all the information to anticipate and mitigate uh, the emergence of the diseases.
2: She says doing what we can to prevent diseases from emerging will be critical rather than reacting to their spread. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed.
0: invasive perennial vine kudzu has long been termed a scourge of southern U.S. landscapes and is now seen in states as far-reaching as North Dakota, New Jersey, and yes, Indiana. One DIY permaculture collective is investing in new ways to use rather than simply erase this
5: stubborn plant. Josephine McRobbie reports from Asheville, North Carolina. Kudzu, the East Asian vine, was introduced to the U.S. as an ornamental and erosion control plant in the late 1800s. But now... You
6: know, it's like considered maybe the worst invasive species in the Southeast.
5: The so-called vine that ate the South can grow a foot a day, covering whole trees, fields, and telephone poles. It's beginning to expand to landscapes as far-flung as Illinois, New Jersey, and Oregon. Kudzu is the target of huge numbers of eradication projects, but despite this, many Southerners are captivated by the plant's power. It's inspired folk songs, poems, and books, as well as advocates.
6: Kudzu was one of the first plants that really captured my imagination because it's, it's so dramatic. and It's kind of like this big green monster.
5: Justin Holt is an ecology educator and permaculturist in Asheville, North Carolina. With Zev Friedman and Lauren Bacchus, he runs the collective Kudzu Culture, which aims to raise awareness about the many uses of Kudzu. It's a fertilizer for soil and fodder for livestock, and can also be processed to make foods, fibers, and herbal medicines.
6: It's like a staple of cultures and and industries in parts of the world where people have developed relationships with the plant.
5: It's a challenge that is central to permaculture. How do we co-evolve with our environment? Studies have shown that kudzu thrives with rising temperatures, and so with a changing climate.
6: This is a plant that is not going anywhere anytime soon
5: kudzu culture runs regular camps for those who are interested in the plant depending on the season they dig the roots harvest the vines and then process the kudzu using traditional Japanese methods
6: that is I don't think very scalable in in like today's modern industrial economy in the southeast so we're trying to figure out ways to move away from like the the processing that's dependent on a lot of hand labor.
5: So at a recent research and development camp, they experimented with using a food-grade cement mixer to clean off the roots and a chipper shredder to process chunks of roots into mash. Next, the mash went into pillowcases and into the wash.
6: We just like ran a cycle through the washing machine and caught the water that came out.
5: This kudzu water can be used in a couple of ways. It's sort of a cold extract tea, one that kudzu culture has sold to local kombucha companies as an ingredient. But it can also be settled and then refined to make a chalky white starch. In the, water,
6: in the cold water, I'm going to add it to this as it's, as it's simmering. Holt is
5: stirring up the base of some silky tofu, made only with starch powder, peanut butter, salt, and water. Uh,
6: very, very thick paste because I've got a lot of kudzu starch in here.
5: The Kudzu Culture and then, and then Trio source recipe dish. ideas from all kinds of places. Old Southern recipe books, kudzu Instagram hashtags, and East Asian cooking blogs that they run through Google Translate. You can eat the kudzu leaves alone. They're similar in taste to pea shoots. The starch can be used to make a turmeric golden milk or a mochi ice cream. And one of the few traditional uses in the South is using the flowers of the vine to make jelly.
6: And they'd use that because the smell of the flowers is like, it's like the color purple smells like purple. (laughs) Like, uh, Like grape markers or something.
5: Despite Kudzu's reputation and negative qualities, Holt and his colleagues think its possibilities can be leveraged and the plant can truly be integrated into farm and food economies. They're documenting their methodology and starting to apply for grants. They're looking at ideas like how to become a buyer of the roots dug up by farmers or how to process starch or weaving fiber more efficiently.
6: And that's kind of like the main driver behind what we're doing is asking that question, like how... How can this really scale up? How, how can harvesting kudzu as a means of control, as a means of providing food and medicine in a resilient way to people, how can that really take off beyond, you know, some crazy permaculturists who think it's a cool thing to do?
0: That story comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie. Find more on our website, (laughs) eartheats.org. The Midwest is known for agriculture. Corn, wheat, soybeans. But lavender? Maybe not so much. For Harvest Public Media, Rachel Schnelli has the story of one couple who decided to give it a try.
7: Katie Lockwood and her husband both worked for the IT department for the UM System Colleges, but were also hobby farmers for 20 years. So when they moved to Centralia in 2011 and had a small plot of land beside their house, they weren't sure what to do. For Katie, it was simple. She'd always wanted to try and grow lavender, but as they quickly realized, it was a different kind of crop than they were used to. Here in Missouri,
8: it is rather difficult to grow lavender. So we did a lot of research before we planted our first plant, worked very closely with MU Extension because they do soil analysis and make recommendations around how you can improve your pH levels and texture and so on to make it more suitable for growing lavender.
7: They also got help from people outside the state, as they realized lavender is not a native Missouri crop. Kelly McGowan is a field specialist in horticulture for MUA Extension. She says she knows the Lockwoods, but realized there wasn't a lot of data about what it looked like to successfully grow the crop in Missouri, which is very different from the plant's Mediterranean origins. She says in a lot of ways, Missouri couldn't be more different. Instead of arid, dry climate, Missouri is wet, muggy, and sometimes has harsh winters. She started a series of small lavender farms across the state. Through this and conversations with people like the Lockwoods, they hope to figure out how to make the crop viable for small farmers.
8: Diversifying, growing lots of different things is sometimes helpful. And, um, you know, including lavender in that is is really my goal. I want people to not be afraid of growing it. You can make pretty good money off of it. You know, it, it, um, it isn't cheap to go to a lavender farm and pick lavender or buy products or essential oils. So I just want to see our, our farmers be successful with it.
7: McAllen says the great thing about lavender is the variety both in products, from coffee to cocktails, to essential oils and soaps, to the crop itself. At first glance, all the Lockwood's rows of lavenders look exactly the same. But as you get closer, you realize there are differences in colors. And while there are 14 varieties at the farm, there are more than 450 in the world.
8: There's actually more than that, but those are the ones that have names. So we actually don't grow from seed because lavender cross-pollinates really easily, and it's hard to get the true strain. You're not necessarily going to get the same plant with the same scent or the same oil content with the same color and so on.
7: Katie's idea for a lavender farm began in 2016, and the first planting was in 2018. They plan to open a U-Pick season for customers in 2020, but because of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is the first year they've offered it. They began this year's season at the beginning of April and are open daily from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., as well as 10 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. on Fridays. Surrounded by fields of lavender with bees buzzing and birds chirping, Katie and her husband welcome people to the lavender farm. And they say bringing people to rural Missouri was one of the reasons they started this business in the first place.
8: We felt like it was a,
7: a good choice for us
8: and would be fun to bring to the community, a fun thing to bring people out to an area maybe of Missouri that people don't tend to visit very often. They could learn more about the battlefield nearby and see some of the historical places even in town and just introduce people to an area they might not normally come mm-hmm.
7: While their UPIG season ends with the summer, Katie said their business doesn't stop there. They plan to be at the Columbia Farmers Market and to sell their lavender merchandise all year long. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Rachel Schnelly.
0: Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective that covers food and farming in the Midwest. Find more at Harvestpublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. For most of us, the motivation for shopping at farmer's markets is to purchase local food, support local producers, and to basically know where your food comes from. Here in Bloomington, we have more farmer's market opportunities than ever, and there's never a doubt that the farmers at the stalls are the ones who grew the food. Our guest this week had a different experience in Tampa Bay, Florida. As the food critic for the Tampa Bay Times, Laura Riley started wondering about some of the sourcing of the foods offered in the stalls of open-air markets, as well as the menus in some of her favorite restaurants. Laura Riley visited the IU campus in the fall of 2018 as part of the IU Food Institute's speaker series, and she stopped by the Earth Eat Studio to talk with producer Alex Chambers about her work.
9: Welcome to Earth Eats.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
9: Yeah, glad to have you. I wanted to start off with the uh, investigation into food fraud. What got you started on that and then what did you end up finding?
1: So I'd been thinking for a number of years that I was being lied to and that the that the and, and, and I'll tell you the small ways, you know, the kind of like Everyone, you know, everyone, all the restaurants claim this is a house made dessert. And it's like, I know that dessert. I have seen that dessert come off the back of the Cisco truck. And you kind of think those type of lies are, are benign. You know, they're, they're kind of white lies in the scheme of things. But I started seeing with the advent of kind of farm to table restaurants, more pernicious lies that were misrepresentations of farmers work, essentially, um, or I suspected as much. So I I had been talking, I've kind of haranguing, I guess, uh, the paper for a while. It said a number of times that I thought, I think there's something here. And my editor or my editor's editor basically said, you know, Riley, bring us one thing and we'll talk. So I went to one of my favorite restaurants, a restaurant I'd reviewed really favorably, and I just took a picture of their chalkboard. And, you know, it was like, a, you know, one of those hipster multi multicolored chalk chalkboards. I brought it back to the office and I started calling the farmers listed or the farmers or food producers listed on the list or on the, the chalkboard. And um, the first one I called, it was a uh, the, the grouper and snapper at the restaurant where they were purportedly um, caught by Captain Kirk Morgan. That was his name. And I was kind of like, do I call this guy Captain Kirk or do I call him Captain Morgan? And either way, it's <laughs> terrible. So anyway, so I called up Captain Kirk and said, hey, I want to talk to you about your relationship with this restaurant, Boca. And he said, what's a Boca? And I said, well, you you've, you're a commercial fisherman, right? And he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, so you must sell to, you must maybe through a middleman sell to this restaurant, your your snapper and grouper. And he's like, well, that's impossible because I don't catch snapper and grouper. I catch uh, mullet and sheep's head, you know, very different species. And I said, well, how could this have happened? So we talked for a few more minutes and then the guy said, wait a second. I was at Icy Sharks, which is this big kind of retail and wholesale fish market. I was at Icy Sharks and a chef stopped me and asked me what I I caught and we exchanged business cards. So I honestly think what was happening was that this chef at this restaurant had a a file drawer full of business cards of farmers and, you know, and it was like a game of Mad Libs. So he basically would fill the chalkboard up with all the business card names in his his, uh, file drawer. So I I went to the paper and I said, I have proof that at least this restaurant that I suspected as much of is misrepresenting what's on their, you know, their farm to table items on their list. And and they said, well, go ahead. We'll give you a couple months off of your regular duties and uh, bring us back a story. And so I, I didn't have an investigative team. I didn't have a data team or all the things that, that people now have at newspapers. And, and I mostly bumbled my way through dumpster diving and getting moles in kitchens to, to feed me invoices and that kind of thing. Um, and you know, eventually kind of had a, a critical mass of stuff that I'd found out. Then I kept the scale of it hyper-local and very small. And I think it actually had more impact that way because I think everybody at that moment, once it went online, people nationally were all saying, yeah, I think that's happening here where I am too. So it was an interesting moment, I think, you know, to to do something that was very, very local um, that resonated with people in all different parts of the country.
9: And you started with restaurants, but then you also moved to looking at farmer's markets
1: well farmers markets i i was from northern california and moved to florida and and wondered why the farmers markets had no farmers at them that was a mysterious development and that it was clear there were a lot of outdoor markets i mean i hate to even call them farmers markets outdoor markets where in florida you could buy apples and asparagus and things that flagrantly don't grow in the state of florida and and i kind of i thought well this is another area where i don't know if they're doing anything illegal or really even immoral but it certainly seems in poor taste to have a reseller kiosk right next to a legitimate, you know, small scale farmer who's struggling and, you know, doing all the delivery and, and marketing and all the things himself, um, it seems like a um, a surefire way to, to kill off a lot of small farmers. That for that part of the story I would um, basically I use the, the the wonderful world of Facebook. So I would go to these people's Facebook pages, figure out where their farm was, and just drive there on a Sunday morning and surprise them. You know, like we we basically me and a photographer would like show up at people's front doors, and they'd be in their pajamas, and we'd say like Hey, we tried to call. We're you know we're just here to see your animals, or we're we want to meet your chickens, or whatever it was. And half the time, people were happy to have you know most farmers are like Come on in. I'm in my pajamas, but you know you're welcome to see my chickens, and half of them mysteriously didn't have anything planted or were in transition with the farm or, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was was a pretty mixed bag.
9: So where is this coming from?
1: Well, I think, first of all, there are more and more people all the time that are interested in the provenance of their food. And some of that is because they want to be um, gourmands and just, you know, fresh food, fresh local food tastes better, you know, if it travels you know, shorter distances. Some people, it's very fear-based. You know, people want to understand the food, the origins of their food, because they're afraid of what that food could do to them, you know. And sometimes it's people want to keep the money in the local economy. You know, there are a lot of different ways that people get to this idea of wanting local or sustainable food. And it's certainly easier to tell someone you're doing it than to actually do it, you know. And I think we just don't have the infrastructure in terms of policing at the local, state, or federal level to really crack down on on fraud.
9: So about the policing, what can we do about this? You've said consumers need to make more of an effort, push harder at farmers markets, I think, at restaurants to ask about where their food is coming from. Mm-hmm. It seems like wouldn't it be better to have more regulators?
1: Well, any change happens either bottom up or top down, right? And and it's, it's a situation, I think, in this case, where both could potentially be effective. If we kind of demand that legislators take a look at some of this stuff, that is one avenue. Um, And I'll tell you, in the state of Florida, I went to the commissioner of agriculture and told him about this problem and said, this is serious. What are you going to do about it? And he was utterly unruffled by the prospect of people misrepresenting at farmers markets he was saying you know this is not this is a guy who who wanted to be governor and and has a long history many generations in ag in florida so has a vested interest in florida farmers you know and that's kind of always been part of his platform but for him it was more important to get farmers markets or let's just call them outdoor markets in places that were you know food deserts to get wholesome food into those places was more important than to drill down on are they farmers or are they resellers. And I get that. I totally understand that. I think that's a legitimate argument. He had other fish to fry. But I think there are other subtle ways of demanding change. You know, for instance, the state of Florida has about 40 seafood festivals every year. These are huge draws, huge tourist draws. People come from, I you mean, know, some of them it's, you know, 140,000 people come to a town of 20,000 people to go to these festivals. Well, I went I did a store another story kind of in this series on that phenomenon and you know, these kiosks or these kind of vendors will have the front will say, Florida Grouper Sandwich, nine dollars or Florida shrimp po boy, et cetera, et cetera. All you have to do is walk around to the back of the kiosk and there's stacks of boxes of like Vietnamese shrimp and, and Southeast Asian basa, which is like a you know kind of a, a bottom feeder fish that that is frequently substituted for expensive fish like Grouper. It would have been easy to bust these people. Consumers have to exert pressure on on whatever bodies do govern those kinds of things. You know, obviously at a federal level, it's you know, FDA, USDA. But there are state officials, state inspectors that should oversee. Those kinds of things, you know, they should be more concerned about that than they are.
9: Have you seen changes happening since the? So the articles came out two years ago. Have you seen, of like ripple effects, from them?
1: Yeah, our our um, state attorney general took a real interest in this. She did in, initiate this investigation, and there there has been some kind of token effort to to bring to make people accountable. But I think in any in any industry. Liars will be liars. And so they will amend their behavior fleetingly. I mean, the, the one of the restaurants that kind of was the most egregious perpetrator in the series that I did, they hired someone to be their forager, their kind of farmer liaison. And this young woman was essentially just doing PR, but, you know, kind of trumpeting the the, the farmers and, and that kind of thing. And they promptly fired her as soon as they felt like the heat was off of them. So, you know, it's. I think also restaurants in particular they they operate with such narrow margins that there are times where, you know, it's just really hard to do the right thing, and it's so tempting to to hedge or to, you know, greenwash a little bit. You know, buy a lot of Cisco stuff and then kind of finish off over the top with some. Microgreens from down the street, so um, it's you know it's it is it's very hard to do the right thing, um, especially if you're talking about a place where there's real seasonal change, because consumers don't know what is in season. We had an Olive Garden commercial recently in the state of Florida, that was talking about local Gulf seafood, and the picture on the ad was a salmon that does not in any way grow. <laughs> you cannot buy a salmon, find a salmon in the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, but that that reflects that people don't know. And it's easy to pull the wool over
9: our eyes. Has doing this investigative project, you were a food critic, you've been a food critic. Did doing that investigative project change how you approach your writing?
1: Oh, 100%. Because I felt I was compl- I was part of the problem. I was blithely parroting back lies that people were telling me in my reviews. And so now I am much more skeptical, and I also frequently say prove it if people make claims. I recently did a review of a restaurant that's another restaurant from one of the chief perpetrators in the series, and they told me about this deal they had with this cattle rancher in Florida and that they were basically raising cattle, you know, whole life cycle, and, you know, not corn-finished, etc., for this restaurant, and I I absolutely was not going to write this down, you know, until I had proof. So I had to independently find out whether they were making up tall tales. And in fact, it was completely valid. But I, I increasingly feel like that's part of the job. You know, Food Critic, like, there aren't that many of us left at at major U.S. dailies. Newspapers are under, you know, critically hard times and and lots of financial pressures, and it's it's a job that's largely gone away. But the ones of us that are left, our beats have changed, and there's a lot more investigative work and metro work and even just kind of consumer journalism that we all do. It's not so much just thumbs up, thumbs down, I think, now.
0: After producing this investigative series, Laura Riley decided to reveal her identity publicly instead of trying to stay undercover, as many food critics do. Alex asked her how this changed her work.
1: Definitely has allowed me to do some some bigger stories and some more kind of deep-divey stories and, and stories where you're kind of immersed. Earlier this year, I did a project on Florida Florida oyster aquaculture. So. Florida wild oysters have been really decimated, and the the short reason for that is that the salinity of that body of water has increased dramatically in recent years. And the oysters can hack it. You know, they're they're pretty sturdy beasts. But what it has meant is that the predators that come in from the Gulf of Mexico now can do it 12 months out of the year, and it's just a buffet. So the wild oysters have been completely decimated. So, there are all these oystermen who are essentially on the dole waiting for something to turn around that's probably never going to turn around. So meanwhile, all these young people, a lot of you know millennials with like marine biology degrees, are like, "Well, let's do oyster aquaculture at the top of the water column. So it's the, the all the apparatus sits up high, the predators can't get to it, and you can pull it in and out. I mean, it's it's a lot it's the difference between hunting and farming, though. so it ha- it comes with a lot of kind of ideological differences and kind of this. You know, it's almost like this like, you know, Crips and Bloods kind of uh, mutual distrust kind of thing. So I love those stories where it's about disruptive technology and the culture, the interstices that happen kind of where the old meets the new. So I did this story in, in Apalachicola Bay with this young guy whose family's been, you know, fourth generation oyster, you know, oyster tongers from Apalachicola Bay. And he's having to go into the next county because he can't do it there. So he goes into the next county and is doing top of the water column oyster aquaculture. And he's a little bit of a pariah, you know, in amongst his kind of longtime family and friends. So it's those kind of stories that are just much harder to do if you're, if you're kind of worried about who knows you.
9: Thanks so much for being here.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Laura Riley served as food critic for the Tampa Bay Times for nearly 11 years. Her award-winning Farm to Fable series led to nominations for a Pulitzer Prize for Criticism and a James Beard Award. She was a finalist for both in 2017. She left the Tampa Bay Times in 2019 for a position at the Washington Post. Find links to her work on our website, eartheats.org. Stay tuned for more Earth Eats after a short break. I've got a simple yet delightful apricot recipe, and Susan Mintert takes us on an Indiana wine tour. That and more just ahead. Stay with us. here, you're listening to Earth Eats. Across the country, feral hogs are causing big problems. It's estimated they cause more than $2.5 billion in damages each year when they root up land and crops. And the wild pig population is continuing to grow. While some states encourage hunting, others have come up with a surprising way to control the population. Harvest Public Media. Seth Bodine reports.
4: It's estimated that there are more than 6 million feral hogs across the country, and they can be huge, weighing up to 200 pounds, about the same as a Great Dane. The damage they cause can be extensive. It's a menace. I, uh, I don't do need not, nothing but tear up your property. That's Dylan Schoonover, a hunting guide at Hog Wild Preserve in Purcell, Oklahoma. Oklahoma is one of the states that still encourages hunting to help control the population. On a rainy day, Skunover is leading Todd Kissinger on a hunt. After zigzagging through the woods for more than an hour, they see a group of hogs and he starts to make oinky noises to lure them closer. I told you there's a bunch of pigs in here. Yeah. Kissinger came here from Kansas just for this hunt. As a farmer and rancher in Mulvane, Kansas, he understands how damaging some wildlife can be.
5: We have huge flocks of geese that come in on our wheat fields and they will mow it down. I mean, they will just eat it down to the bare dirt. So I can only imagine what a bunch of hogs will do when that's what their deal is to do 24-7 is to eat, root, and tear up.
4: But allowing hunting can be a double-edged sword. Dale Nolte heads the USDA's feral swine program. One of the problems is that people bring in hogs to make it easier to hunt. One of the big struggles we have is this, what seems to be a constant release of animals back into areas where they've been removed or into new areas. Nolte says he has no problem with someone shooting a feral hog, but when they're released to encourage hunting, those hogs can destroy a lot of land. They could also be a health risk. Feral swine carry a number of zoonotic diseases, which are detrimental to humans. I mean, swine brucellosis, uh, hepatitis. We're we're finding leptospirosis in about 50 to 60 percent of the feral swine in some areas. There's a definite hazard out there. Instead of hunting, the USDA is luring the hogs into big traps or shooting them from helicopters, both of which the department considers better options. In the Midwest, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska already have a range of restrictions on hunting feral hogs. Sam Wilson with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission says when you allow hunting, it's actually harder to control the population.
6: The law seems counterintuitive at first because we're prohibiting people from hunting feral hogs. However, if you know anything about hunting and hunting culture, often the people who hunt deer, for instance, are interested in having good deer populations.
4: The 2018 Farm Bill created funds for wildlife services to address hog problem areas. And the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation started restricting hunting in those areas. But Eric Cohen, who works for the Animal, Plant, and Health Inspection Service in Oklahoma, says he runs into roadblocks trying to trap hogs on private land.
2: We've got
10: to have their permission, and there's a lot of people that don't, won't give us the permission to to work on their property.
4: While states with growing wild hog populations are adding more restrictions, others like Texas and Oklahoma are still embracing the hunting of feral hogs, and hunting guides like Schoonover insist they're helping control the hogs. You know, uh, just like a manager of a company, manages the company, and employees are employees. We manage populations, you know, and uh, in turn, we get to eat awesome, awesome meat. But guys like Schoonover might have a hard time finding a place to hunt as more and more states embrace hunting bans as a way to control populations. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Harvest
0: Public Media is a reporting cooperative covering food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. share my own recipes here on Earth Eats, but I'm making an exception this time. This recipe is simple and delightfully suited to summer, and I want you to try it. So here goes. You wanna start with two ripe apricots. If yours aren't perfectly ripe, I think it's better to use slightly under-ripe rather than over-ripe. You want them to be pretty firm. And then you're gonna wanna pit these and slice them thinly. Next, you want a medium-sized fennel bulb. If you're not familiar with this ingredient, it's basically the wide stalks at the base of a fennel plant. And this variety of fennel is grown specifically for its bulb rather than for the seed that's often used as a seasoning. The fennel bulb is similar to celery or to like a Napa cabbage stalk in terms of its texture. The flavor is much milder than fennel seed, but it still carries that subtle hint of licorice. So you wanna cut off that rough end of the fennel bulb and cut the bulb in half and remove the core with a knife. Then using a mandolin or a sharp knife, slice the fennel bulb as thinly as possible. Don't go all the way up into that upper stem part of the plant, just the main body of the bulb. Combine that with the apricot, and then cut a quarter of a small onion into small chunks or cubes. It would be fine to also use a sweet onion or even a shallot here, just use whatever you have. Next, take a small jalapeno or a quarter of a large one Remove the seeds and finely dice it. Toss that in with everything else. Sprinkle the whole thing generously with salt and a few grinds of fresh black pepper. Add a teaspoon or more of fresh lime or lemon juice. And if you don't have that, try a splash of rice vinegar or white wine vinegar would also work. Drizzle with olive oil and gently toss to combine. Serve this salad immediately while it's still crisp. This is not one where you wanna let it marinate. Be sure to garnish it with a few of those feathery fennel fronds. This salad is light, fresh, surprising, and bright. You get the sweetness from the apricot and the fennel also has some sweetness. Then you've got the sharp of the onion and a little of that acidity from the lemon or the vinegar. And then you've got this surprising little kick from the jalapeno. It's really nice. Those in my family that tasted this salad declared it brilliant. I hope you do too. Let me know if you try it. You can easily get in touch by emailing eartheats at gmail.com. I love the intensity and the softness of apricots in this salad, but if fresh peaches are easier to get your hands on, by all means, you can use peaches. Summer weekends are the perfect time to visit some of the nearly 100 wineries throughout Indiana. As Susan Mintert discovered, the state's signature wine, Traminette, is an ideal wine to sample and compare as you traverse the Hoosier State. You could say
10: Traminette is the perfect companion to summertime in Indiana. A hybrid of the German Gewurztraminer and the French, Johannes Sieve, Traminette is all American developed decades ago by researchers at the University of Illinois and Cornell University. It's well adapted to Indiana, and Traminet wines take on a variety of characteristics, depending on the grape's growing conditions and the winemaker's style. I sat down recently with Meredith Easley of Easley Winery in Indianapolis and Tom England of Ivy Tech's culinary arts program. To learn more about the range of styles our Indiana winemakers produce with Tramonet.
3: And people often ask us when they're always trying to identify what, what is Tramonet, where does it fall in my current wine knowledge? And I always say, well, have you had a Sauvignon Blanc? And they'll say, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with Sauvignon Blanc. And I'll say, have you had a Riesling? And they're like, well, yeah, I know what a Riesling is. Those are both white wines, as is Tramonette. Mm-hmm. And if you look at kind of what's in the middle when you look at it from an acidity standpoint, and from a fruit standpoint, with some of that citrus, there there's no wrong answer. What you perceive in a wine is absolutely there. But we always welcome it that when folks are at our wine bar sampling, or we're at festivals introducing the Traminet, or even with um, you know with different chefs who've never been introduced to Traminet, we like to say, what do you notice? You know, first it is about the aromatics. Then it's, you know, swirl that glass, let those aromas really unlock and climb out, and see see what's there. Um, so that's some of that. This is, wine is just so much fun, and it's still a mystery in so many ways, but all of these things are factors.
11: The interesting thing is, you know, and you mentioned this, uh, as they were being poured, there's a big color difference from, from these. Part of that has to do with the age. Um, two of them are 2016 and two of 2018. So the older the wine gets, the darker it's going to get. So and we see that in number one, a little bit of color in there. Uh, but it also has a lot to do with the winemaking process and, and, you know, how they treat those grapes. And, and uh, the, the first one is aged a little bit longer on the leaves, so on on the dead yeast cells. Uh, and it's created this almost um, creamy texture to it and, and uh, nose to it. Although the acid, you know, is, is what you would expect uh, from a tram. And it's, it's nice uh, crisp acid in this uh, even though it doesn't have any sugar you know it's it's cleansing this is this would be a great you know starter type wine that you could have with shellfish or you know even a little shrimp uh, cocktail uh, to start a meal uh, and that you know that clean acid will, will clean your palate and get you ready for the rest of the meal
10: hmm so what about the next one
11: yeah the next one's really light in color uh, and it's a uh, 2018 I believe uh, so it's it's younger uh, and shows that younger color uh, I like how the honeysuckle comes out in this. the The sweetness is just a little bit. It's only one percent sugar, so a lot of people can't even detect the sugar in that. Uh, and you know, th- this is a great example of what you can do uh, here with Tramonette Ed is, is do these really light, crisp white wines, uh, and then build up to semi-sweets and even sweets. Uh, so we see these these first two are what I would say are dry wines. They're you know crisp, great uh-huh. starters to a meal, or even drinking on their own, you know, a great start to uh, a reception even.
10: I just love the fruity and floral characteristics of all of these. They smell so pretty.
11: They are very floral, and, and I think roses even come out in this, um, Carnation, and this again comes from that lineage of the Gewurztraminer and, and how that grape brought over into the Traminet, the, the f- those great floral flavors. The easily Traminet, the third one, uh, this is my go-to summer wine. I Thank you, Tom. I, I do. I, mean, I, I, I get a case of it. And, you know, after a hot day in, in the sun, you want something to drink, this is this cold is a great way to refresh And after that. and mm-hmm. um, it's, it's great with picnic foods. I mean, it's great with smoked meats, you know.
3: I'll tell you what, Pad Thai is a big staple mm. in our house. This goes great with Pad Thai. And I'm just really proud of what I'm sampling here from the different Indiana wineries and their Traminette. This is, you know, you talk about making a Traminet run across the state. You definitely could go from winery to winery, from the north to the south, and say, hi, can I try your Traminet and get a really good sense of the different growing conditions and the different winemaking styles. And th- I'm
10: just really excited. Let's do a road trip. Yeah. Right, <laughs> I know. So let's try the last one here, the sweetest of the four.
11: And it's not sweet by any means. I mean, this mm-hmm. still is, you know, maybe 3 or 4% sugar.
10: There's just subtle differences from wine to wine that we've got set in front of us. Mm-hmm.
11: When I taste that last one from Butler, I, I get this almost iced tea kind of a feel, like peach iced tea. There's,
3: mm, yeah, I could, I um, could see that. Yeah, yeah, and so and this, it, is tar- this is the
10: Butler 2018 Yeah.
3: And I think this one just won a big award at the Indy International. It did.
10: It, it was Traminet of the year at Shout the out Indy. Shout
3: to the but- folks at Butler. Yes. Nicely done.
10: All four wines we sampled were from award-winning Indiana wineries, Easley, Country Heritage near Fort Wayne, Tunney Winery in Muncie, and Butler Winery in Bloomington, winner of Traminette of the Year at the 2019 Indy International Wine Competition. Meredith Easley is with Easley Winery in Indianapolis, and Tom England is a certified executive chef with Ivy Tech's culinary arts
0: program. For Earth Eats, I'm Susan Mintert. That story comes to us from Susan Mintert at Indiana Home Cooks. Find more at indianahomecooks.com. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: The Earth Eats team includes Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Laura Riley, Alex Chambers, and Susan Mintert. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.